Merry Christmas to everybody. I didn't get to greet on the way in. If we haven't gotten a chance to meet yet, my name is Chris, and I am one of the pastors here at Restoration. Go ahead and keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter 2. The verses that Jeremy read for us just a moment ago will be our sermon passage as we are now in our third Sunday, our third week of Advent, and we've been walking through Matthew's gospel. So keep your Bible open there. You can find my outline in the worship guide as well. So if you didn't grab one of those, there's still time. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are there Christmas traditions that you look forward to every year with your family, whether it's something you listen to or watch, cook, participate in, attend? Are there Christmas traditions that every Christmas you try to hit them with your family. We have some weird ones in Penn's family. Uh, First being, we call, it's not original to us, I'm sure there are other people who do it, um, but the light game. The light game, it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a game where whenever we are driving somewhere during December, uh, we count the Christmas lights that we see. You get one point per house decorated with a lit up Christmas display of, of some kind. Uh, The teams are split down the middle of the car. Theo sits on on my side. I'm usually the one driving when we're together as a family. He's no help. He sits behind me. So I get teamed up on by Lindsay, Naomi, and they almost always win. And Naomi, who's about to turn three, she gets very competitive with this completely pointless game. And it's a game that you you have to be strategic when you drive somewhere. you have to, to think about an alternative route back. You know, if you get bested, you're trying to find another route, another street where there might be some more lights on your side. Another tradition that we have come to enjoy is just all of the wonderful festivities that Little Harding, so uh, both Naomi and Theo go to daycare at Little Harding, and they go nuts during Christmas season. We just had their Christmas pageant this week, and Naomi went from being like the most energetic singer of Christmas carols to uh, kind of collapsing on the ground. Uh, she uh, flew a little too close to the sun during the first song, um, but it was, it was wonderful. That, so they go all out with uh, Christmas activities and parties and sing-alongs, and throughout the month of December, they do all of these arts and crafts. Some of them they send home with us, and others they put up on the walls at Harding, so every day we're walking in and we're seeing um, our children sometimes superimposed in these, these scenes. I have some evidence here. Um, I have a lot of slides today. I'm really sorry, Gerald. But this is, uh, this is Angel Theo. So I'm walking into school one day and this is on the door. This is high quality. Next we have Buddy the Elf Theo, which is my personal <laughs> favorite. If they ever recast that role, I think that he, would, he and all of his positivity and energy um, would be great. Um, but we love the Christmas season. But one of our, our favorite traditions, apart from like the, you know, actually like Christ-centered things that we do, is that every year we watch through all of the Christmas episodes of The Office. It's a little bit of an undertaking because every season has, almost every season, I think, has a Christmas episode. One of my favorites is Moroccan Christmas. Moroccan Christmas. And as I was studying this passage, the story about the wise men, Um, studying this passage, digging into it, reading good resources and commentaries, getting ready for this sermon. It it was a little bit like that scene from Moroccan Christmas 
where Angela is having the figurines from her you know, nativity scene thrown into the drawer by the party planning committee head, um, at that time, Phyllis. This is a bit of a switch because they're not period or, or culturally correct for uh, their Moroccan Christmas party. Because there's a lot of things about this passage that maybe we have heard or maybe we have sung in Christmas carols or maybe we've, we've heard taught or, or preached before that there's really no biblical or historical evidence for. And maybe you have sung, we haven't sung it here, but maybe you've heard or sung on 104.5, We Three Kings. Uh, and really for both the idea that there were um, three of these wise men and that perhaps they were kings and that perhaps we even know their names as some traditions say, Casper, uh, Balthazar, Melchior, I don't know if I'm saying that last one right, but there are all of these traditions surrounding this passage all the way down to some traditions claiming that one was from Persia, one was from India, one was from Greece. It gets even more wild as you kind of dig into the weeds of some of those traditions. Some say that like the apostle Thomas went later and preached to these wise men. There are other traditions that say that there's like a church where you can find the skulls of these wise men and they were later baptized. Like there's all this crazy stuff. Um, but at its heart, at its heart, this is, is, a, is a beautiful, it's an important story that Matthew is trying to teach us a couple things through. He has a couple of main purposes here. First, he wants to show us, as we have, have seen already in our Advent series, he wants us to show us fulfillment. That's the first thing he wants to do. This is the second of the five Old Testament quotations that Matthew, in, in the first two chapters of his gospel as he talks about the birth, uh, the conception, the birth, the early life of Jesus. He frames that whole narrative about the early life of Jesus around five Old Testament quotations, and he makes it very, very clear. Like, hey, this is proof, this is evidence, this is a foundation for your faith that Jesus is the promised Messiah of old. So there's a direct promise, fulfillment, connection to the Old Testament being made here as Matthew goes, hey, remember that passage from Micah 5? Jesus fulfilled that. The prophet said Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and look, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So he shows us kind of direct promise fulfillment, but he also kind of shows us the ways in which Jesus echoes and fulfills the Old Testament in less direct ways. We'll get more into this in a little bit, but as we read this story about these foreign men coming and worshiping, bringing gifts to Jesus, I think we're supposed to see connections, connections to passages like uh, the Queen of Sheba's visit to King Solomon in 1 Kings, where you have this wonderfully powerful and wealthy queen coming to Israel, marveling at the majesty and the wisdom of Solomon and the beauty of his temple, and she comes and she brings gifts to him. That's a story that there are other passages in the Old Testament where that story is connected 
to what the coming Savior would do and what would surround his coming. Passages like Psalm 72 and Isaiah chapter 60, which speak of the coming of uh, the, the messianic age, and, and they paint the picture of the nations coming and worshiping and, and even specific things like bringing gold and myrrh um, to this king who is greater than David, greater than Solomon. So these are all connections that I believe Matthew wants us to see. So he's showing us fulfillment, but he's also, as we'll dig into in a moment, he's also showing us what is going to happen. He's also showing us foreshadowing as both in the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish religious authorities and Herod, we see a foreshadowing of how Jesus is ultimately a baby, a son born to die, is he not? He's, he's, a, he's a baby born in Bethlehem who would be crucified on the cross. And we see the seeds of the anger, the rebellion, the rejection, and the indifference of the Jewish people towards their promised Messiah. So he's foreshadowing the rejection of Jesus, the death of Jesus, um, but he's also foreshadowing the Great Commission, where God was not content to have the birth of his son and the fulfillment of all of his promises to to Israel, he was not content for that to be a private event. Isn't that cool? He wasn't content for that to be um, a private party, but he's inviting the nations. He's drawing these men to come and worship his son. So I want us, um, in, in just two points, very unbaptist of me this morning, couldn't get to three, and I figured that our child care workers wouldn't mind at all if I just did two points. Um, gift cards accepted after service, just kidding. Um, But I want us to, in these two points, look at the contrast, look at the contrast in the way in which these different parties in our story respond to Jesus, which I think is really the key point of this entire passage. The way in which Herod responds, the way in which the religious authorities respond, the way in which the wise men worship. And at its heart, here's like my whole sermon in one sentence, we need to make sure we have responded to Jesus rightly. Because how we respond to Jesus matters. Because he is the king of kings come to dwell with us, we should worship him with all that we are. So, point number one. Point number one. As we look at the first eight verses again, we should worship Christ. I think this story is trying to convince us. We should worship Christ as our king. So like I said before, note the contrast here. Three reactions to Jesus summed up. And the first reaction to Jesus is that we see some men who are seeking Jesus's kingship. They're seeking Jesus's kingship. Verses one and two, look there again on our screens or in your copy of the word or on our bulletin. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, um, from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So I said a bunch of stuff about who these guys were not a moment ago. So, so who were they? Who were they? Let's wrap our minds around who this is, who's coming, who's seeking, bringing gifts, and seeking to worship the incarnate Jesus. Well, our Bible translations, following the tradition of the KJV, my ESV, it says wise men. The Greek word here is simply 
magi. And this, at its core, is just a phrase that means great ones, great ones. This word, it was used originally to refer to Babylonian and Persian priests, magicians, sorcerers, who were like court magicians for the powerful, the rich, and the royal in the Babylonian and Persian empires. The book of Daniel mentions magi, but in a pejorative way, in a negative way. Daniel is able to interpret the dreams of the emperor, whereas the magi were not. So the Old Testament is actually pretty negative about magicians, sorcerers, prohibits, any engagement with like these guys who it says like, yeah, I mean, they're actually doing that stuff. There's something, there's something going on here. Stay away from it. And it's therefore like really significant that Matthew is mentioning them in a positive light because of that prohibition in the Old Testament. So at times in the ancient world, it was a broader term at this point. It wasn't just for kind of court sorcerers of the Babylonian and Persian emperors. It was a broad term by the time Jesus is born that referred to sometimes men who were scholars, um, experts in astrology, and kind of assigning meaning, interpreting the movements of stars and constellations. And sometimes it referred to just men who were philosophers. At other times, it referred to people who were charlatans and who were, for lack of a better understanding, they were kind of fortune tellers and grifters. So these men, we don't know where they fall on that spectrum, but it's likely, given how pricey and expensive the gifts that they brought were, it's likely that they are royal ambassadors of a Babylonian or a Persian king around this time. We don't know exactly where they came from, but that's the best bet. And I had to, I had to look this up, but if that's right, if they are from kind of the, the, in the ancient world where uh, Persia or Babylon was, then it's likely that they had traveled somewhere between 800 and 900 miles to come and to worship Jesus. Contrast that as we will in just a moment with the scribes and the priests who are about five miles away in Jerusalem, who are like, yeah, yeah, the, Micah said, yeah, he's born in Bethlehem, you go find him. It's about a two-hour walk from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. And here are these guys who have been on the road for probably months at this point. Traveling the ancient world is incredibly hard, it's incredibly dangerous, it's incredibly expensive and time-consuming and they have laid it all on the line to come and worship Jesus. So they're coming from the east. We're not sure where. It was a really far place away, most likely. But let's ask the question as well, why have they come? Why have they come? We know that they are drawn to Jerusalem because they have seen something bright in the sky. And for like 1,700 years now, Christians have been debating like what exactly that was. There are smart scholars smarter than me um, who claim that maybe it was a supernova. Maybe it was a, an alignment of planets. Uh, maybe it was a comet. There is a lot evidence, interesting to me, is evidence that uh, Halley's Comet, if you know what that is, very bright comet when it comes near to, to Earth, it's very, very visible. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but apparently, in around 12 to 10 BC, Halley's Comet passed by Earth, it was very, very visible, but that's probably 
six to seven years too early for uh, it to be heralded as the sign that um, let them know that Jesus was born? Was it a purely supernatural light? We're not exactly sure. But a lot of people kind of take a hybrid approach that perhaps it was a naturally occurring uh, bright something in the sky related to stars, comets, supernovas, etc. that apparently went away by the time they got to Jerusalem. And then perhaps it was a supernatural guiding light as we see it like moving and then stopping over Bethlehem. Of course, there's no way in which those other natural phenomenon could be that. But regardless of where we land on that, God is revealing, God is leading these men to come and worship his son. And on top of how like the movements of stars and comets and supernovas, all of that in the ancient world was associated with the birth and the, the downfall of great individuals and kings and emperors, they might also be familiar, since the Jewish people have been spread all over the world at this point through the exiles, the destruction of Jerusalem, the hands of the Babylonian exile. There were millions of Jewish people spread out all over the world, and they carried their scriptures, and perhaps they were aware that they connected the bright light in the sky with the cryptic prophecy from Numbers chapter 24. Maybe you're familiar with the story. In Numbers chapter 24, um, Balaam, who is a sorcerer, (laughs) Balaam is hired by the king of Moab to come and to curse the people of Israel and the the camp of Israel. Um, They have yet to enter into the promised land and this foreign sorcerer is hired by this king with ill intent to come and to make battle with the people of Israel. But when Balaam comes, instead of hurting God's people, he blesses God's people, if you've read the story. And each time the king is like, no, 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 stop, stop, stop blessing them. Like, come on, rain down some, some ash and firestone on them. Come on, man. Each time Balaam, he keeps blessing and he speaks words that many people understand to be a promise about Jesus, a messianic prophecy as he speaks of a star rising out of Judah. His, his words, Numbers Chapter 24, verse 17, a star rising out of Judah, and he goes on to describe this this ruler who will rise and who will destroy God's enemies and reign over all the earth. So perhaps there's a connection there, perhaps they're not. But they are seeking, pay attention to their words, they're not seeking the one who will be king. They're not seeking the one who is born and is a little baby, and maybe someday he will ascend the throne of his father David. They are seeking the one who is the king. That's striking, isn't it? And imagine the entourage of these wise men has come into town and you're King Herod. And these wise men come to you or they hear of the questions they're asking other people. Where is the king of the Jews? And to the ears of Herod, who as we'll talk about in just a moment is a very paranoid person, very power-hungry person, that question must have sounded like, where is the real king? Where is the real king? Maybe you at your place of work have been asked um, at some time or another by a customer, an employee, I don't know, like, who's really in charge here? That's basically what they're asking, is it not? It's an offensive question to Herod. And that's who we're moving on to next. So that's the first category. We see these men who are seeking the 
reign of Jesus, seeking the kingship of Jesus. But secondly, we see in Herod, in his example, verse in verse 3, in his plan, his murderous uh, intent that we see bubbling under the surface of verses 7 through 8, um, we see a man who is threatened by Jesus's kingship. All right? So this Herod who we're introduced to, there's a lot of Herods in the New Testament and in the Gospels. We need to keep them straight. This is the Herod who we refer to as Herod the Great. Herod the Great wasn't that great of a guy. Herod the Great was not a zealous practitioner of Judaism. He was not um, a guy whose heart was after the Lord. He uh, was only half Jewish. He was half Jewish, and he was half uh, descended, instead of from the line of Jacob, descended from the line of Esau. So if you go way back to the book of Genesis, you know the family uh, drama that unfolds um, between the children of Isaac. Uh, But he's half Jewish. He is not the rightful heir to the throne in Jerusalem. He reigns in Jerusalem because he's been set up there basically as a puppet king by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire who conquered Jerusalem and Palestine in around 63 B.C., and then in 37 BC, it was like, man, we need, uh, we need some help administrating, keeping control there in Palestine because these Jewish people do not like us being in control. So uh, Herod, he was, he was set up there. Uh, his dad, who was a powerful, rich Roman citizen, pulled some strings. Herod, he came and he ruled with an iron fist. And even though he did a couple of things that in history we look back at them um, positively, he enlarged and beautified the temple in Jerusalem. He did a lot of really messed up stuff as well. We know that he personally like, set into motion the murder of at least one of his wives and at least three of his sons because he was so paranoid that someone would try to take his throne from him. In fact, Caesar Augustus, like the OG Caesar, He joked that it was uh, safer to be Herod's pig than his son. Because if you know, like, Jewish people in Jewish culture, you don't eat pork. It's wordplay in the Greek. But it's safer in Herod's house to be be swine uh, than to be a son because he was so infamous for his violence, for his paranoia. He had a personal secret police that he would carry out hits on people and kind of enforce his um, brutal reign with. So, um, Herod, he hears the question of these wise men that they're seeking the key uh, of the Jews, and he is terrified, the text says. He responds with being troubled, which is probably too weak a translation of that word. It should be that he is, he's in turmoil. He's losing his mind, and therefore he sets in motion. He has no intention of worshiping Jesus, right? Verses 7 and 8, we know that as readers, because he's about to go murder all the children in Bethlehem. So he sets in motion a plan to maintain his reign. So Herod is threatened, whereas the Magi are, are seeking Jesus. Herod is threatened. And then the third reaction that we see, and I think this is the most dangerous for us, is that of those who are indifferent to Jesus' kingship. The religious leaders in verses 4 and 5 were told that Herod, who apparently has such a superficial understanding of the scriptures, he doesn't even know, like, okay, uh, yeah, my 
my citizens have this understanding of the Savior who's going to come. Cool. All right, let me go talk to the people who are Bible scholars and learn where they think this guy is going to be born someday. So Herod, he goes and he assembles all the chief priests, verse 5 says, and scribes together, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they, they respond to him. They told him, verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And then there we see the quotation of Micah 5.2, which Jeremy read for us just a moment ago, that direct promise, fulfillment, prophecy, prediction that Jesus by his birth fulfills. But don't miss this, okay? Don't miss this. They have the right answer. They are a two-mile walk away. And whether or not they saw that bright light that drew the Magi from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away, whether they saw that light, or whether, you know, if, if I were in their shoes, I might at least take that two-hour walk down to Bethlehem to see if the promised Savior is here. They just stay put. They are unmoved. And there's a danger there's a danger that as we study the things of God, as we hear the preaching of God's word, as we read his word, there's a danger that you and I, the way in which we respond to Jesus, even if we are his people, even if we have salvation, even if we have a new heart, even if a Jesus has forgiven us, we know him, we know we're a child or a, a son or daughter of God, like we can be a follower of Jesus and fall into a spirit of indifference, can we not? Soren Kierkegaard is a philosopher, and he wrote a devotional reflection. He was not an Orthodox Christian by any means, um, but he wrote this reflection, this devotional reflection, about the paradox here and the contrast between the wise men and the scribes. It'll be up on the screens, or you can just listen along. I know the text is a little bit small. I'm sorry. You can just listen along. But he reflects on this contrast, and he says that although the scribes could explain where the Messiah should be born, they remained quiet unperturbed in Jerusalem. They did not accompany the wise men to seek him. Similarly, we may know the whole of Christianity, yet make no movements. The power that moved heaven and earth leaves some, leaves us completely unmoved. What a difference, he says. The wise men had only a rumor to go by, but it moved them to make that long journey. The scribes were much better informed, much better versed. They sat and they studied the scriptures like so many dawns, old-timey word for scholars, but it did not make them move. Who had the more truth? The wise men who followed a rumor or the scribes who remained sitting with all their knowledge? What a vexation it must have been for the wise men that the scribes who gave them the news they wanted remained quiet in Jerusalem. We are being mocked, the wise men might have thought. For indeed, what an atrocious self-contradiction that the scribes should have knowledge and yet remain still. This is as bad as if a person knows all about Christ and his teachings and his own life expresses the opposite. We are tempted to suppose that such a person wishes to fool us unless we admit that he is only fooling himself. So here's the question for us. How have we responded to Jesus? How have we responded to Jesus? Have we responded like Herod, perhaps? Not with murderous intent, but as people who, like the old poem puts, you know what, like, I, I like being the, the master of my own faith, the captain of my own soul. 
Following Jesus would mean I would have to dot, 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 change. Following Jesus would mean I couldn't dot, 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 put whatever it is in the blank that we are unwilling to lay down to follow Jesus and to receive eternal life in Him. Are we rejecting Jesus because we, like Herod, like being in charge? Because we like being like the the heart of every sin since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden is, you know what? I think I would do a better job reigning. I think I would do a better job on the throne than the Lord. Or have we, like the scribes and the Pharisees, are our heads full of good truth? Are we nodding along with, with everything that's said in this Advent Christmas series and yet our lives display no change? as we're confronted with the story of Christmas and as we spend time in the Word. There's no humility. There's no holiness. There's no desire for God. There's no joy. There's no repentance. There's no growth. Are we being changed or are we like the scribes sitting still, unmoved by the truth? So that's the first question, I think, these first eight verses. They call us to reflect. How are we responding to Jesus? But the second reflection, I think these first eight verses they they call us to to think about is simply this. Are we making Jesus known to the nations? Are we making Jesus known to the nations? I'll read this from a New Testament scholar named Craig Keener in his commentary on this passage. He puts it better than I could. And he says that this story, it's a microcosm. It's a tiny little picture of Matthew's gospel as a whole. It reminds us that we must preach the gospel to all because we cannot always predict who will hear the message and who will not. You catch that? Those who we least expect to honor Jesus may worship him. And those we least expect to oppose him may seek his death. This passage, it confronts Matthew's readers with a summons to personal decision by contrasting these main characters. The opponents of Matthew's audience, they take Jesus for granted. And the reader must identify with the pagans, with the magi, rather than with Herod or Jerusalem's religious elite, and hence are compelled to recognize God's interest in the mission to the Gentiles. So this same gospel that begins with the nations coming to worship Jesus is going to end with the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Go, go, make disciples of the nations, baptize them, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And there's no coincidence there at all that the salvation of the nations bookends this story of Jesus and this gospel. So are we praying? Are we going? Are we willing to go? Are we sharing Are we financially contributing? Are we helping efforts to plant churches both in our city, in our country, um, amongst the nations where there is no light? Because the same God that sent this bright star to lead the Magi to his son, he sent us, he sent the church to be the light to the world today. We play the same role as this star that has led the wise men to Christ. So are we being faithful, bright lights leading people to Jesus? Second, so first, we should worship Jesus as our king, but second, we should worship him with our best. We should worship him with our best. I'll get moving a little bit quicker here um, so we get done on time. But 
as these magi, as they find Jesus, as they leave from Jerusalem, and as they come to Bethlehem, they find the house where Jesus now is. It's likely that they are not present at the scene of the birth of Jesus, but some months later, after the birth of Jesus, they have moved from wherever inn or manger situation they were in when Jesus was born to a house now. And I want us to look at three characteristics of their response to Jesus. Three characteristics of their worship. We can learn from them. Let's let these wise men lead us in worship this morning. Because first, their worship of Jesus, it was marked by joy. It was marked by joy. In verse 9, if you want to put your eyes there again, Matthew, he says that after listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Listen. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So Matthew is just piling up words to express how one scholar put it. He's trying to help us understand that they are deliriously happy. They are overwhelmed. Their joys are just, ex- uh, their, their souls are exploding with joy expressed at seeing the newborn Jesus. And think for a moment, I mean, man, entering into the presence of Jesus in the home where he and his family are dwelling. I think of Mary's perspective, you know, from like a, the perspective of a host, like this is a little bit awkward, like, Okay, this royal delegation coming into my my small, modest home. But they come in and they rejoice because they know they see the fulfillment of what was promised to them. They see the proof of, of what they have been looking for for so many months and what they have journeyed so long to find and to discover and to enjoy. In our lives, hopefully, as we, as we worship together, Sunday morning, corporate worship, as we think about all of life as worship, think of Romans chapter 12, that, that all that we are, all of our life, every moment, every breath of our life should be lived in spiritual worship. We should be people marked with joy. And we have much more recent, we understand much more. Being on this side of the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we know so much more than these wise men who fell down at the feet of Jesus and worshiped him with great joy. We know, like Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So we might not have the benefit like the wise men of, of seeing the baby Jesus with his mother in Bethlehem, but man, we can come and meet and see and experience Jesus in his word, Jesus crucified for us, Jesus risen from the grave, Jesus ascended to heaven, Jesus, Jesus reigning and ruling, present with us here And we can rejoice. We should be people of joy. So their response to Jesus, it was marked by joy. But secondly, their their response to Jesus, it was marked by reverence. It was marked by reverence. Look at verse 11 again. He says that in going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. They fell down and they worshipped him. The Magi in this moment, they join the long list of, of people in the Old and New Testaments who, when they encounter the presence of God, 
they're flattened. And they fall down. And their face hits the ground as they express a holy fear. As they express being so overwhelmed by the glory and the presence of God that they they have nothing to offer. And they fall flat in honor of the presence of Jesus. They're filled with reverence and awe. I've been doing music at churches for a long time. Since I was about 15 years old, I've been involved in music ministry. And we all know those worship war conversations and debates, right? Should we sing these types of songs by these types of artists? What should the, what should the tone, what should the speed, what should the order, what should the elements of our, of our services be? And, and I don't like these things, and I, don't like, I would like more of this. I would... So many of those conversations about our, our corporate gathered worship, for me, as, I, as I've gotten older, I've just been struck by how not wrong, but just different they are from the concerns of worship that the Bible talks about. Because when we see people worship in the Bible, more often than not, they are wrecked. They are like Isaiah experiencing his, his vision of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Isaiah, he's, he's, not, he's not worried about the songs that are being sung. He's not worried about the temperature of the auditorium. Right? No, he says, woe unto me. I'm, I'm a sinful man. I'm in the presence of God. So our worship, I think we could do this better. And I say this as a person who has a, has a hand in, in organizing our worship. I think we could do reverence better in our gatherings. Because the question we should be asking as we come together and as we pray and as we sing and as we take in the preaching of God's word and as we take the Lord's Supper together, as we worship together, the right question is like, am I, am I honoring God as he deserves? Not like, did I like what happened here on Sunday morning? Worship is not about us. It is, as Paul Tripp, I heard him say one time, like worship is a, is a gracious weekly reminder that we're not the center of the universe. So the example of the Magi, I'm challenged. Worship is about God. It's not about me. But thirdly, their response to Jesus, it was marked by sacrifice. These three gifts are, um, on one level, simply an evidence of of the sacrificial generosity pouring out of the hearts of these men, right? So gold, extremely expensive, the symbol of ultimate value given to this poor peasant family in Bethlehem. Think of that scene where they're they're probably in this very, very small, simple home uh, built of of mud and, and wood, and they're here being handed gifts of gold, like they're an ancient, powerful royal family. And frankincense and myrrh were both luxury goods harvested of trees from the resin of trees that were used for all sorts of things, like making perfume um, or medicinal purposes or burning in ancient temple worship. These were incredibly expensive luxury items uh, that that would have been worth like a hundred times what the the average Jewish family, what their budget was for a year. And a lot of people believe that maybe this is how, as we know, Jesus is about to, his family is about to flee to Egypt, to sojourn in Egypt because they want to escape 
Herod's plot to kill Jesus. And perhaps this gold and this myrrh and this frankincense is the means by which they are financially able to do so, to go and to live amongst a foreign nation. But on another level, these gifts, they represent deeper realities. And this is debated. Christians debate this. Scholars debate this. But I think it's no coincidence that in the Gospels, the story of Jesus begins with these references to myrrh and ends with references to myrrh specifically. As interpreters all the way back to the early church fathers have said that like these gifts, they remind us um, in the gold that Jesus is a king of David's royal line in the giving of frankincense, which was often used in ancient temples to worship, prepare the space for the presence of the holy for God. We're reminded of his divine nature. And then in the giving of that myrrh, we're reminded that he is, as Amanda led us in that, in that beautiful song a moment ago, that Jesus is the child, the son who came to die. So I hope we understand that our, our, our idea of Jesus, our faith, our trust in Jesus, that we understand this Christmas season, that this Christmas story is not just a, a quaint folk tale, but something that really happens. That's something that really happened with the, that was stage one of this rescue plan where your sins and my sins were placed on the cross of God's divine son. And he, as Pastor Charles preached for us last week, he rescued us from our sins, chapter one says, by going to the cross in our place. So the myrrh, it reminds us of that. It points us, it foreshadows the myrrh that would both be in, in Mark chapter 15. Mark speaks of how Jesus, as he is, is hanging on that cross, as he is suffering both the physical turmoil and the spiritual agony of crucifixion and dying in our place for our sins as myrrh mixed with wine is lifted up to him on the cross. And then John's gospel says that after he has died and his body's been taken down off of the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy Jewish man, he purchases for the preservation of Jesus' body, for the entombment of Jesus' body, he purchases just this massive, generous amount of myrrh, which was used in ancient burials to hide the smell of decaying bodies. But that Jesus who, who was embalmed, who was prepared for his burial for, with this myrrh and who was offered myrrh mixed with wine during his crucifixion, he did not, as we sang, decay. He rose from the dead and offers all of us salvation. So if that's not your Jesus this morning, if your Jesus is just the quaint folktale Jesus as we celebrate the birth every year of a, of a influential Jewish rabbi who had some fun things to teach us about who to love one another. That's not who Jesus was. So maybe this morning you need to believe in the true Jesus. Maybe you need to believe in the sin-substituting divine Jesus who came and was born in Bethlehem. Maybe you need to, as the scriptures invite us, to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead. If we do this, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, we will be saved. So maybe in a moment as we pray, as we, as we sing, as we take the Lord's Supper, maybe in that moment you need to cry out to the Lord and you need to get right with God. You need to simply just ask him like, man, I need what Jesus accomplished. Forgive me. I give you my life. 
But to the rest of us, this question poses um, just a, a final reflection uh, point of evaluation for us. Are we worshiping God with our best? Are we worshiping God with our best? Or are we approaching the Christian life with a spirit of obligation? This week was one of the harder, longer weeks of the year for us teaching at Harding as we had finals this week or midterm semester one exams. And I had the same conversation over and over and over again as we reviewed and worked through study guides and got ready for those exams. And the question was, what grade do I need to get to not fail? What's the lowest possible, Mr. Pence, what's the lowest possible amount of effort that I could put into this semester exam and not fail your class? And some even were looking at their report card and running equations and I had one student who said, man, I could just not show up and still pass. I'm just going to start Christmas break early. It's like, man, it'd be better to just show up in Christmas tree, that joker, and get a little bit of credit. Like, show up at least. Come on. But in that, I saw the way that I sometimes think about the Christian life. Following Jesus and being a disciple of him. How often do we think, like, okay, what, what is kind of the line? How can I toe the line of, like, being a good Christian? I know Jesus has called me to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, to love my enemies, to serve others sacrificially, to pursue holiness, to flee sexual immorality, um, to let my speech be um, shaped by a desire to build other people up and not tear down, not to gossip, not to slander. I know all of that stuff, but how can I get as close to the line as possible? What was the least amount that I could put into that search for, that approach to maturity? or obedience and still pass my semester exam, so to speak. And I'm challenged there by, by, the, by the spirit, by the example, by the worship and the awe, the self-sacrificial worship pouring out of the hearts of the Magi. And we should, as we move into 2024, let's make it our aim to worship Christ with our best. Whether that's saying yes to a new opportunity of service at church. Maybe during announcements today, you'll even hear about something. We need your help. And your initial response is to say, nope, somebody else. Not me, somebody else. Or whether that's dealing with maybe a persistent struggle with sin in your life that you need to talk with somebody about, gain accountability for. Let's worship Christ with our best. Let's live every moment for his glory. Let's not come away unchanged by the Christmas story. And I'll close with this. This is a poem written by the uh, civil rights activist, scholar, poet, philosopher, um, educator Howard Thurman. And he talks about the way in which hopefully this story will, will not leave us unchanged. And it's called The Work of Christmas. Um, and he says this. He says, when the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among broken.